Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to the Billboard Chappie Podcast. Gary Trust here uh, with an absolute legend coming up here on the podcast, Mickey Dolan's of the Monkees, because 50 years ago, uh, the Monkees made history on Billboard's charts on the Billboard 200 dated February 11th, 1967. The Monkees' second album, More of the Monkees, hit number one, and it replaced their first album, The Monkees. In total, the group led for 31 straight weeks. And that's a record still in the Billboard 200's uh, about 60-year history. No other act has led for as many as 31 straight weeks. So the Monkees have a pretty big place in Billboard chart history. I was really excited to get Mickey Dolans on the phone. So nice of him to take some time to chat about what he remembered about uh, setting that record 50 years ago. And just all the decades of the Monkees' legacy of entertaining so many people. So Mickey Dolans coming up here on the Billboard Chart B podcast. And in fact... Here they come right now. Here we come, walking down the street. We get funniest looks from everyone we meet. Hey, hey, we're the monkeys, and people say we monkey around. But we're too busy singing to put anybody down. You know, as you know the story, we've had decades now pretty... Uh, wonderful success, um, including the the wonderful new album we did, Good Times. At the time, frankly, I'm sure I'd been told, um, you know, uh, but I don't recall uh, being told or having any kind of a, of a <laughs> celebratory party because <clears throat> we were filming that television show, you know, eight to ten hours a day. And at night, I was going in and recording, um, you know, most of the lead vocals, sometimes two or three a night. Um, and then on the weekends, we were uh, rehearsing for the tour. And uh, between that and all the publicity and the press and promotion, no, I probably wasn't that aware. And also, I had not, um, I was, uh, you know, I was not that au fait with the music business at the time. I'd done some um uh, I, I was in a cover band, you know, doing uh, playing uh, bars and bowling alleys uh, in, in a cover band. And so I knew a little bit about that uh, part of the business. And then I <clears throat> had done a little recording, uh, 
uh, I did a song that was eventually released as a Mickey Dolan song, but I actually recorded it before the Monkees uh-huh. uh, <clears throat> with the Wrecking Crew. <laughs> and a good friend of mine told me years later, he said, I played on your first record. And I said, oh, really? It was Glenn Campbell. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think years later we became good friends, and he said... Yeah, I was on your first session, but of course, at that age, I was just probably 18 or 19. Right. Uh, I didn't know much about the recording business or uh, or the record business and, and how that all works. So much happens so fast, you know. Right. Uh, it's like being in the eye of a hurricane. You, you just can't absorb anything more, you know. Uh, you get that kind of deer caught in the headlights <laughs> kind of look. Right. What did you enjoy most about, it sounds like everything was a whirlwind and maybe it was just all one big blur for the most part, but did you like making the TV show more, the acting? Did you like going in at night and recording the vocals or did you love all of it? Well, I liked all of it. I mean, it it was incredibly exciting and, you know, I approached it as as an entertainer. Um, I knew that the, it was going to require uh, singing and playing because at the audition you had to be able to sing and, and play an instrument to get in the audition, right. to get through the auditions. And my audition piece, for example, was Johnny Be Good because uh, I played acoustic guitar and uh, and uh, folk. Well, started with uh, classical guitar, you know, Segovia kind of stuff, and as a kid, and then morphed into. Um, uh, folk music uh, in the early 60s, and then that morphed into rock and roll. And like I say, I, so I knew the show was more than just about acting, but I was a singer. My parents had, were both singers. They were both in the business. So, you know, I I, I can't say I liked one bit more than the other. I, w- I, I would say I was probably more comfortable on the television set because I'd already done it. I'd already had a, a TV series as a kid uh, called Circus Boy. Right, right. And and the same studio, in fact, and shot parts of it in the same soundstage. Yeah. When I when I showed up on the uh, at the Columbia Screen Gems lot, uh, you know, to start working on the series, it was the same guy at the gate that had <laughs> ten years earlier known me as Mickey Braddock and Circus Boy. So for me, it was like a home even had the same uh, uh, cinematographer that I'd had on Circus Boy. So I, I'm a, I was probably more comfortable just because c- I was familiar with it, right. uh, the process. And I was not as familiar with the process of recording yet. Um, but I do remember uh, li- li- liking it all. I mean, how can you not when you, you're, you're selling all those records and you're getting that incredible reaction? And, you know, I look back and some of it amuses me and I think of you know, the first time I met the songwriters, Lester Sill, uh, the, the head, uh, head of publishing uh, for Screen Gems uh, West Coast, took me to that Burl Building West. I think it was Lou Adler's building, uh, an old converted apartment building. And he said, oh, you should meet the songwriters <laughs> that are going to be writing for you. And we walked in and there were these little cubbyhole kind of office spaces, you know, like they divided it all up, and he knocks on the door and opens it, and he says, uh, Mickey Dolenz, this is Carol King. She's going to be writing some songs <laughs> for you. And she was sitting at a little upright piano with a woolen sack tape recorder on the top, same one that I had, actually. So, we, And then down the hall, he knocked on another door. It was David Gates, and then another 
knocked on another door and it was, you know, somebody else. And, but I was totally unfamiliar with, um, you know, the process and uh, of the business at that time, at that age. Um, <clears throat> but I do remember that. I remember that quite clearly. I don't know why. I remember, remember meeting Carol King for the first time in that, in that little office space. Um, and then, of course, there's the story of Harry Nielsen, who uh, got his, had his first hit with us. Uh, right. Cuddly Toy, uh, first recording, uh, Cuddly Toy. And I remember very clearly him coming into the session during headquarters, and uh, Lester Sill brought him in again. And uh, uh, he was working at a bank, as a matter of fact, in the valley and trying to sell songs on the, you know, on the side. And Lester Sill brought this guy in, and... And he said, this is a songwriter, Harry Nielsen, he's going to play a couple of tunes. And he sat down at the piano and played Cuddly Toy. And Davey said, yeah, I'll do that. And years later, Harry and I became very, very good friends, as you may know. And uh, years later, we were talking about it. And he says, yeah, well, I, I never told you, but when Lester Sill walked me out into the hallway after that, he, he looked at me and says, you can quit the bank. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. <laughs> Did you think it would be a hit show, not just even just at the time, but the way it's become such a, an well, institution? Not at that time. You no. never know. You, you, you don't know in right. advance. And anybody that tells you they guarantee you a hit is just kidding themselves. Right. If, you know, there's no formula. If there was, there would never be a flop. <laughs> but, um, and over the years, uh, looking back, you know, I was, I've been asked that question so many times. One of the producers, when asked, he says, we just call it lightning in a bottle. And yeah. that's sort of my feeling about it. What you do is, you know, you surround yourself with talented people and you work hard and you do your job and you, uh, uh, you know, you do what you can. You, you try and you hope and <clears throat> try to avoid the, the common, you know, mistakes. And, and then all of a sudden, <clears throat> from some inexplicable reason really you can't reduce this stuff like in any scientific sense and take it apart you know and say oh well star trek was a hit because of you know william shatner <laughs> oh you know just because of him or yeah. well it was uh, only because uh, it, it was a hit because of gene roddenberry it, it was a hit because of the set design or the dialogue or the writing it doesn't work like that what happens is that at a certain point uh the whole becomes greater than the sum of its parts uh, with anything, with a movie, with a record, with a television show, and that's what happened, I think, with the monkeys. Uh, you know, the combination of the writers, the songwriters, the script writers, the directors, the producers, the us, the four of us, I'd like to think we had something to do with it. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it just sort of ignites, you know, and uh, you can't reduce it. You can't break it down into any separate pieces. It just doesn't work like that. The one element that the show has that so few other shows have are, are all these hit songs. So on top of everything else, you're talking about some of the best pop music classics of all time, and that, that just kind of put it over the edge. Absolutely. That had a lot to do with it, of course. <clears throat> and, uh, and the production of the songs. And, you know, the, the, the singing of the songs. And... Um, you know, you can't fool all the people all the time. And, and when you have material by Carole King and Neil Diamond and 
David Gates and uh, Boyce and Hart. Now, don't forget, Boyce and Hart were integral. They were integral to yes. the success of those songs. So they produced them also, wrote uh, some of the biggest hits, and produced uh, the, the, some of the biggest hits. And they were the ones that were probably most responsible for creating the original sound of the monkeys because that's what producers do that's what they did especially back then the a and r uh people at the record company and the producers would find you know some band playing in a bar in, in texas and say you know we want to groom you and take you out to la and and uh, groom your look and groom your sound and that that was that was typically how it happened you know not anymore unfortunately so much because the a and r departments of record companies you know, hardly exist anymore. But back then, that's what producers did. And so when we were just, like I say, it was just uh, the perfect storm, you know, it just all kind of fell together. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, then I saw her face. I, I just want to ask you two more questions, uh, Vicky. I'll, I'll let you go. But uh-huh. um, one uh, thing that, that, that's sort, sort of part of Monkey's lore is, is the the brief tour you did with Jimi Hendrix, and we know. Yeah, that's he, right. he left, I remember he, that. He, I'll tell you, it was it was quite simple. I'd seen Jimi Hendrix in New York um, playing as a sideman for I think it was John Hammond or somebody at at one of those New York places, the Lamplight or the Bitter End or something. And he was introduced uh, as, well, not introduced, but he, somebody said to me, you got to go down and see this guy play guitar with his teeth. And I was <laughs> like, cool. So we went down to the, this club, and sure enough, there's this guy. I'm sitting front row center, and he's playing guitar with his teeth. I think he was known as Jimmy James at the time. And then I uh, never heard anything else uh, about him or from him until I'm at Monterey Pop Festival. And all of a sudden, these three guys come on stage, and... I look up and I go, hey, that's the guy that plays guitar with his teeth. <laughs> and, of course, it was the Jimmy Hendrix experience, and they weren't very well known yet. Uh, as you know the story, they went, uh, he went to England, and Chas Chandler uh, basically put together the experience uh, with M- Mitch and Noel. Uh, and um, so I guess, in a way, they're a manufactured group, right? <laughs> <laughs> and... 
um, yeah, he must have, he introduced uh, Jimmy and Mitch and Noel, and they became the experience, and of course were just you know fantastic. Anyway, I saw him at Monterey, and I suggested to our producer, since we were looking for an opening act for the tour at the time, and I, I said, this, this, this guy's really great, and he's very theatrical, because it was, it was a theatrical act, you know? Yeah. And um, I said, and you know, the Monkees was theatrical. And I guess they liked the idea, Chaz Chandler and, and our producers, made, they made a deal. And sure enough, he was the opening act for, I think, six or eight shows. Um, it was strange. I do a, the story on stage before I play Purple Haze. I tell the story of him, you know, going out on stage and, uh, you know, uh, starting Purple Haze and, this, and, you know, Purple Haze is in my brain. We want Davy. We want the monkeys. And that's typical. You know, it's happened. Uh, it, it happens, you know, like I remember at a Rolling Stones concert when uh, Guns N' Roses were opening before they were very well known and, and the crowd was, you know, screaming for the Stones. Right. The funniest one, though, is when I was at the Whiskey and the Doors were the house band and uh, we would go down and, and they would open uh, the, the shows with uh, some, you know, Jim Morrison and the, and the house band, the Doors. Yeah. And one night I remember Jim, Johnny Rivers and he was huge there at the Whiskey. And Johnny Rivers was there, and they were screaming. People were yelling over the Doors songs, We want Johnny! We want Johnny! Uh, so, um, I forget what you're... No, oh, yeah, so anyway, so, but basically, you know, the audience is, you know, they're there to see the monkeys, and they're right. little 12-year-old kids, and so, and then he broke a record. He broke his record, and, and then, uh, uh, you know... We got it. We had we got we had a number of different opening acts. Um, we had uh, the Fifth Dimension. We had uh, uh, I Can Tina Turner. We had uh, Lulu, of course. We had uh, and then in the eighty in eighty six we had Weird Al Yankovic, and and also Debbie Gibson opened for us uh, once before she had you know hit real big. Any memories of hanging out with Jimi Hendrix on that brief tour, just backstage? <laughs> yeah, you know we would we would watch uh, him from the wings and of course just be uh, you know gobsmacked at, at, at the talent um, and uh, we we hung a lot off stage I hung a lot with him in, uh, in New York at Electric Circus and and we, we would hang out you know in the rooms and there's photos I have of him and us sitting around jamming in a in a hotel room and um, he was a lovely guy he was very quiet very sweet very you know naive a little bit and uh but just the consummate you know a uh, genius artist Well, last year, you guys uh, hit number 14 on the Billboard 200 with Good Times. It was your highest charting album in 48 years. So it's an unbelievable yeah, legacy you guys have. Unbelievable. Yeah, it, good. I love the song. Uh, I was just listening. Again, You Bring the Summer, written by Andy Partridge of XTC. It's, it's just such a perfect yeah. mix of, of the 60s sound. It, it still works. That, that jangly pop is just sort of yep. timeless. Yep. 
It is, and uh, we just, again, it's another good example of just the perfect storm. You know, if, I'll, I'll tell you uh, uh, the story, uh, not, not that, uh, not that uh, complicated. Uh, a couple of years ago, we started talking about the 50th anniversary and <clears throat> what we would do. And, you know, touring came up and a record came up and TV came up. And <clears throat> we um, simultaneously, you know, but we, but we were trying to figure out, you know, the, between us and the record company, Rhino, what, what are we going to do? Are we going to write all the stuff ourselves? Are we going to play it all like headquarters? Are we going to, uh, are we going to get different producers and are we going to get different writers? And so, uh, simultaneously, we found in the vaults um, a number of unfinished tracks, uh, some more completed than others, some with vocals, some with that and without, and uh, but they weren't just demos, they were multi-tracks, so clearly they were the beginnings of, of what were going to eventually be uh, finished and mastered and released, but then the show went off the air and we stopped making albums, and so we ended up with this massive amount of material, unfinished material, and we went through, through a lot of it. And we found a couple of things that were very, very interesting. One was a song uh, by Carol King that she'd written and that Peter ended up doing. And another one um, by uh, Neil Diamond that had a Davy vocal on it. Right. <laughs> a good vocal, you know, not just a scratch vocal. But they were unfinished, and then the, the thing that tipped it over the top for me was we found um, a song that Harry had written and done a, uh, a vocal on uh, uh, for me to eventually sing. That was Good Times. And when I heard that, <clears throat> it was him on piano, Mike on guitar, and a couple of other uh, musicians. And I heard that and I went, my, oh, my God, I can sing a duet with my old friend Harry Nielsen. And the record company went nuts, and I, I went nuts, and uh, I'm the one that suggested we use that as the title track, Good Times. Right. And, of course, Harry did never did demo vocals. You know, he was always flat out, so his vocal is stellar. And <clears throat> I like to think that I kind of tried to keep up with him on it. <clears throat> and um, that sort of gave us the conceptually an idea. The record company then went to Adam Schlesinger, who I knew, knew of because of uh, uh, Fountains of Wayne, of right. course, yeah. and that, that thing you do, um, which I remember at the time when it came out, um, people said, you got to hear this song and see this movie. It sounds like you. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I did, and of course it, 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 it did. In fact, I bumped into Tom Hanks at a party once, and he said to me, uh, hey, I made a movie about you. <laughs> and, and I was, So anyway, Adam, I met with Adam, and we hit it off, and uh, he obviously was the perfect call. He was very excited about it. And then they started reaching out to people, and of course I'd heard of Noel Gallagher and Paul Weller and Andy, uh, Andy Partridge. Right. Um, but frankly, I hadn't, uh, you know, the name sounded familiar, but I wasn't that familiar with Death Cab for Cutie or for, with, uh, or uh, Weezer. And I, I told my wife and my daughter, and they're like, you're kidding. You got a song by Ben <laughs> Gibbard. You got a song by Rivers Cuomo. And I'm like, yeah, cool, huh? And uh, so they <laughs> that reached makes out. Cool. It turns yeah. out that these guys were huge fans, and they submitted material. Um, and not stuff, you know, that, uh, in the bottom of their drawer. This is stuff that uh, had been written specifically for us. 
And so it just all fell together. Adam Schlesinger did an incredible job. It, the album sounds like it was all recorded on the same day in 1967, you know. <laughs> <clears throat> so, yeah, I'm very, very proud of it. Um, future of the Monkees? Well, we had a hell of a year last year touring, and, uh, and of course, without David, uh, you know, without David. And right. then Mike toured with us uh, for a while, and now he's writing a book. There are no immediate... Uh, plans uh for any monkey business because frankly we're still riding along the crest of that of the success of that album and i do i'm doing a lot of solo shows and i do uh, songs off the album in my solo show uh so there's not there's no decision it's not like um well we're not going to do anything or we are going to do something it really just it hasn't come up uh we have other uh i have other things going on and uh, i think peter does too uh, so basically, it's a wait and see. If I could always ask them, you know. Your legacy on Billboard charts is is uh, right up there with with some of the top acts of all time. So continued congratulations from everyone at Billboard. Thank you so much, sir. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.